Welcome to Conflict, Power, and Persuasion. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, and in this episode, we'll be looking at how environmental issues, specifically climate change, affects conflict dynamics. Does climate change raise new or different concerns about the relationship between conflict and environmental issues? And if so, what are different approaches to respond adequately to such concerns? We'll be hearing from Simon Mason and Olivia Lazard. Simon Mason is a senior researcher and head of the mediation support team at the Center for Security Studies, ETH Zurich. He's been involved as a facilitator in workshops on conflict analysis, dialogue, negotiation, and mediation with actors from conflict contexts around the world. Together with Deka Ibrahim Abdi, he recently co-authored the book, Mediation and Governments in Fragile Contexts, Small Steps to Peace. Simon joins us today from Zurich. Olivia Lazard is an environmental peacemaking and mediation practitioner, as well as a researcher. She's currently a visiting scholar at Carnegie Europe, where her research focuses on the geopolitics of climate, the transition ushered by climate change, and the risks of conflict and fragility associated to climate change and environmental collapse. Olivia joins us today from Brussels. Simon and Olivia cover a lot in this episode, and for reasons explained by Olivia, the focus here largely centers around climate change and peace processes, and the necessity of getting nature to the table, so to speak. But you don't have to be part of a peace process or even a mediator of environmental disputes to benefit from this conversation. I think no matter what your role is, whether a leader within a business, community, or organization, whether involved in policy or planning, a biologist, mediator, or project manager, whatever types of problems you're addressing, there's definitely a benefit to considering bringing nature to the table. Not only for humanity to contribute to the fight against climate change, but as we'll hear, because of the potential to create adaptive solutions that are robust to changing climate patterns. So without further ado, let's hear from Simon and Olivia now. This is Conflict, Power and Persuasion, podcast of the Canadian International Institute of Applied Negotiation. We're diving into a big and uh, incredibly important topic today, one that's fairly complex, uh, so much so that it marks the first time that I'm joined by two guests to help unpack the topic, uh, which is the dynamics of environmental issues and conflict. And of course, climate change will be a significant part of these discussions. I'm joined by Olivia Lazard and Simon Mason, two leading experts in this area. So uh, welcome to you both. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much to you. I've given a brief summary of your professional background in the introduction, but I'm hoping you can just take a moment and introduce yourself, uh, perhaps starting with uh, Olivia. Sure. Hi. So, uh, yes, you already mentioned my name. I'm Olivia, and um, I'm an environmental peacemaking practitioner and researcher. I currently work with Carnegie Europe as a visiting scholar focusing on um, the geopolitics of climate change, ecological collapse and climate transitions. And I've worked for I don't know how many years, probably more than 12 now um, in conflict and fragile zones uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle Eastern and North African regions bit of Latin America and um, in Asia, focusing on the on the political economy of conflicts. And uh, and it's in the field essentially that I understood or saw how uh, peacemaking, security development communities were missing the mark on environmental issues and on climate security issues. And that's how I developed another type of specialization in the political ecology of conflict. Wonderful. Uh, and you come from a science background then, or was it Not politics? All. Not okay. even remotely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Completely conflict-related, you know, peace and conflict studies, international development, and um, international international security and political economy. Right on. Uh, thank you, Simon. Yes, so my name is Simon Mason. I'm here at the Center for Security Studies at the ETH uh, Zurich, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. And I work in this um, primarily in this mediation support project, which is a joint project between us at the CSS and Swiss Peace. And it's funded by the Swiss Federal Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, in contrast to Olivia, I actually did study environmental science. And so <laughs> I came from that angle, but then I gave it up at one point. And I really shifted after my PhD, which I did on the Nile and water sharing, I shifted totally out of the environment with a bit of a heavy heart, but also 
just in a way more intrigued by the political, the the human side, the the system stuff, and less the environment. And then bumping into Olivia and just the whole world that is focusing on climate change, it started to seep back into my work. But the last more than 10, 15 years, I think have been focused more on classical mediation. So mediation thinking, process design, conflict analysis, where the environment pops up, but it's not the kind of the, the core. Mm-hmm. But, but again, in a way, now it's coming back. So, uh, you know, the, the way things go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wonderful. So we're definitely in good hands here, and I'm looking forward to digging into this. So let's just get started uh, with the problem here. Can you give us an overview of conflict and environmental issues? I'm sure many would think of uh, conflict over natural resources here, but can you give us an overview of the spectrum of disputes related to environmental issues? Well, maybe I can start. Um, there are many. Uh, the environment is essentially, you know, the sort of, uh, I think, Simon, you've heard me say this before, but it's, um, it's the canvas on which all, you know, human dynamics play out. Um, so there is definitely a relationship between um, the environment and conflict dynamics, whether or not it's acknowledged um, in the field. And the ways in which these dynamics play out depend on each and every context. And they're being more and more molded by different issues related to climate change, which I can you know, get to in greater details later. But we know obviously that you know, um, environmental or natural resources, let it be timber, minerals, fossils, even biodiversity, either vegetal or animal biodiversity, are part and parcel essentially of conflict dynamics and uh, conflict economies. And then obviously, you know, there is an issue around uh, climate change and the incoming disruptions related to climate change and how, and I think it's CIPRI uh, that has been doing a lot of work on this along with Adelphi, you know, they've identified essentially how climate change can impact four different avenues of change related to conflict dynamics, either related to how um, it displaces people how it changes livelihood systems, how it affects the ability to mobilize uh, populations around certain grievances and how it affects essentially elite bargains. So the the ways in which we're finding more and more disruptions and uh, unreliability in uh, natural patterns around rainfall, which define agriculture, which define, you know, like uh, migration routes or, you know, cattle herding routes and, and routes and things like this, the more we're finding, you know, that there are there are difficulties essentially of human populations to adapt to very unreliable natural patterns. Yes, thank you. Um, I, I can see how the changing patterns in climate, especially rainfall, would be difficult to adapt to. Um, are you able to paint the big picture here in terms of climate change being a global issue? So even though some of the effects tend to play out in an isolated sort of local level. Sure. When I was in the field, particularly in the Central African region, in the Central Africa and the Congo Basin, essentially, from 2012 to 2018, I heard more and more people, including in very fertile areas, tell me about how they were more and more impacted by climate change, by which they meant that, you know, their uh, agricultural yields, for example, were lessening, that they were being disrupted in their livelihoods when they were Uh, relying on sedentary activities, mostly dependent on nature, Um, that they were observing essentially more and more incidents of uh, zoonotic diseases such as malaria and things like this. And what was interesting was that, um, obviously, as we all know, it was very difficult, especially, you know, in in such minute details, I was in the Kivus particularly, to say, well, yes, this is obviously attributable to climate change. Rather, what was really striking to me was that, you know, during the time when I was in the Kivus and in the Congo Basin, I could observe year on year how uh, forests would disappear, how entire hills would be deforested, how biodiversity would suffer from conflict economies, especially because timber uh, in Eastern Congo is at the heart of various conflict economies. And, by delving a bit more essentially into uh, you know, issues around deforestation and around ecological collapse, I understood essentially that one of the things that we rarely talk about 
is the hydrological cycle and its place essentially in maintaining ecological integrity and in tampering or uh, abating essentially runaway climate change. So the more we deforest, the more we weaken the ecological integrity at the heart of ecosystems, you know, the interplays and interdependencies between water systems, soils, biodiversity, the more we actually create and uh, scarcify water. I'm using this word now because it's, you know, part of uh, demonstrating essentially that we're we're driving the scarcity of water, which is itself therefore you know driving the scarcity of um, of other types of uh, ecosystems collapse, such as you know agricultural productivity or biodiversity and things like this. And what I discovered by going more and more into it, for example, was the fact that ecosystems such as the Congo Basin are more than, you know, important, you know, uh, than just carbon storage or more important than just, you know, being relevant at the local level. They're actually instrumental to the way that the planet functions. So if you take the example of, you know, the Congo Basin, the Congo Basin actually cycles water inside of the Congo Basin. It creates its own water system, but it also sort of distributes water like a watering can to other parts of Africa to parts of uh, the Middle East and to Europe. So it distributes water to Southern Africa, to the Sahel, to the Horn, um, and all the, all the way up you know, to uh, uh, you know, parts of the Gulf. Same thing for the Amazon, which distributes water to Southern America, all the way up to the borders between Mexico and Texas, to California, to the American Midwest, to the UK. So we tend to refer to those you know, ecosystems like the lungs of the planet, but they're, they act as lungs as a, and as beating hearts, distributing essentially the blood throughout, uh, throughout the planet. If we cut them down, so I'll take the example, you know, of, uh, of Eastern Congo again. If we cut them down because, you know, they're uh, at the heart of these, you know, conflict uh, systems, um, then we run the risk essentially of cutting down rainfall patterns all the way up to the Ethiopian highlands, which is obviously where the Nile originates and where, you know, we're now seeing more and more discussions between Egypt and Ethiopia and other, you know, tributaries of the, of the Nile to try and sort of see how to deal with this water resource. But we're not, you know, discussing, for example, where parts of huge parts of the water um, feeding into the origins of the Nile of the Nile are coming from. And when you start looking essentially at the ecological interdependencies that regiment our planet that we should be conscious of, that we should steward, nurture, and regenerate in order to stabilize human civilizations, in order to prevent conflict, in order to actually help with climate adaptation as well, and climate stabilization. We start understanding essentially that, you know, international mandates are, are falling a bit short because nature doesn't appear in as a full voice, as a fundamental aspect of, of security and how we deal with conflict. That's a great example of how deforestation in the Congo can affect far off regions and even contribute as a source of conflict there because of water scarcity. And of course, the deforestation occurring in the first place largely is a way to fuel the local conflict in the Congo. So uh, quite a relationship. Um, before Simon chimes in on specific approaches and considerations for uh, environmental disputes, what would you say is the most unsettling research or data you've encountered that illustrates the severity of the climate crisis? Well, that's um, it's a very good question, and I'm I'm somehow a bit reluctant to give the answer at times because it's not a very good piece of news. Peacemaking communities don't know how important they are to the fight against climate change. The reason for that is um, back in late 2020, there was an article that came out in Nature um, by a bunch of scientists you know, working in Brazil who identified essentially the global regeneration priority areas. So where we need to protect and regenerate ecosystems urgently in order to help essentially stabilize the global climate regime. 
slow down the advancement of climate change, build up essentially on carbon storage, but also, as I was saying, you know, help and strengthen other types of ecological interdependencies, including around the hydrological cycle. As it happens, um, the map that they uh, that they that they came up with identifies all of the most important priority areas in conflict and fragile zones, ranging from Latin America to Africa to Asia. It's essentially like a, a, a key set of zones in between the tropics, just above, just under. Uh, you find places like CAR, Myanmar, Indonesia, you know, Colombia, Venezuela. So places where essentially we need to understand how to integrate this notion of regeneration into conflict resolution and how to make it work in very, very specific ways at the local level, right? It cannot be about climate adaptation or climate mitigation. It has to be about why is it important for conflict parties and for conflict-affected populations to start working with the environment rather than against it or using it or extracting from it. So that's one layer of information which is really important. Conflict and fragile zones are essentially at the forefront of climate action. There is an element of tension which is very unsettling, which is essentially that uh, we all know that we need to de decarbonize. This is an absolute urgency. But in order to decarbonize and to build the type of renewable uh, energy infrastructure that we need, we need a key set of critical materials talking about cobalt, lithium, nickel, palladium, rare earths, um, and you know, borate and things like this. For the moment, a lot of, um, of the critical material supply chains are located in China from extraction to processing to exporting, and in countries such as Australia, Brazil, uh, Turkey, and in some instances and things like this. But the demand essentially for decarbonized technologies is going to grow. This is, we're still not quite there, but we're essentially on the cusp of the decarbonization revolution. And, uh, and that means that commodities are going to be extracted from a lot of other places. And as it so happens, a lot of the places where we find deposits for those critical materials are located in the exact same locations uh. as the ones that need to be regenerated and the ones that technically need to be protected from further conflict protraction or conflict risks. So it's a bit, you know, it's a bit of a looking glass. We're facing our future, but we really need to also look at our past and the lessons that we can draw from that. Because with our decarbonization transition, if we're not careful, we may actually increase substantially, if not exponentially, the risks of conflict worldwide, corruption, predation, uh, extractivism, and we risk doing that in a, in a way which is, you know, uh, locked into geopolitical proxy making because there is a competition at play between a number of OECD countries and, and non-OECD countries. But we also risk actually creating a lot of ecological damage whose consequences we don't know if we can actually mitigate or adapt to or repair. So it raises a whole bunch of questions about decarbonization, which is not about the need to decarbonize that we know, and this is really important to insist on that. But it raises a set of questions about how we decarbonize, what lies beyond the technical sort of aspects of decarbonization, and how we handle an energy transition which is necessarily going to be associated with a lot of risks at geopolitical levels include, and you know, also at, at local levels in various contexts. No, that's not good news. And so not only do we have the interconnectedness of the environment, which you illustrated through the, the Congo example, to make things worse, the global priority regeneration areas are in conflict zones or fragile states then the commodities that will be in high demand for decarbonization technologies are also in those same regions, which would create an added pressure and all sorts of additional risks. So the plot thickens. Um, thanks for that. But Simon, before asking about some specifics on the mediation process and addressing environmental disputes, uh, any thoughts you want to uh, add so far? I did think while listening to Olivia from a peacemaking mediation point of view, a kind of a knee-jerk reaction I felt was that making peace is already such a tough job and we have quite a few failures. 
that if you add another level of challenge with this ecological dimension, you know, it's extremely daunting in a way. And I hope by the end of the podcast, we'll get there. We'll see how it can also be an opportunity and not just one more difficult topic to integrate into already very difficult process of peacemaking or mediation, uh, you know, even without looking at the ecological side. I mean, if, if people are dying in a, an armed conflict, right, there's an urgency to address it and very difficult to address it, that bringing in another level of complexity, you know, I can see why many peacemakers would not do that, at least in, in the short or medium term. Just, you know, to bring in that angle that there's this, this kind of urgency sometimes is trying to stop an armed conflict and a tension between doing that and some of these other issues that have to be addressed. And I just think we should be aware of that. Uh, good point. So we, we have the importance, as Olivia has nicely described for us, the necessity of taking uh, the fight against climate change into these regions in specific, yet the challenge it presents for peace processes so hopefully we can revisit that shortly, but first, can you zoom us in on these conflicts, uh, environmental conflicts? Can you describe some of the approaches and considerations when trying to resolve them? Um, I think what's helpful and we've done in, in training courses on um, conflict resolution and environment is to think on the one hand in levels. Um, so, you know, really start local between two farmers or upstream downstream to then look at a more kind of national level, uh, maybe a broader regional, and then a, a global level. And you can see how, how these environmental issues are playing on all of these levels. But when you're actually trying to deal with conflict, it's not bad to narrow it down, right? To say, well, are we working now on a, you know, between two villages into community level? Are we working more on a national level? You know, questions of building dams or, or um, infrastructure, or are we looking at some kind of global policy questions, which you know a lot of this climate change is, is about? So try not to kind of mix all the levels all the time, knowing, of course, that the environment you know, is, is kind of uh, crossing all of them. And water, is, again, is a great example. And also, you, know, you could actually solve a conflict between two countries around, for example, building a dam. So you're, you're making peace on that level. And then by building the dam, you create conflict between the national level and the local level. So it's, it's kind of interesting how these levels can, you know, kind of, uh, you, you solve something on one level and it can increase problems on another level. But just being conscious of what level you're working on and how they're linked, I think is very important. And from the, the mediation angle, you know, you'd be trying probably more at uh, working on the on the local inter-community or the national level or, you know, armed groups and national level and not thinking primarily of some of the global responses on a policy level that have to be done, but is not in your, you know, primary conflict resolution mindset. So that's the levels. The second one, I think, is just thinking of the diversity of environmental dimensions, you know, renewable, non-renewable, and the kind of the fuzzy line between some of them, but also how the environmental dimension crosses some of the classical topics in a, in a peace process. You know, normally we would say the security issues, where are the fighting forces? How do they stop fighting? Where do they move to? You'd have questions of power sharing, you know, what's the setup of the country and the, and the electoral system and, and then the way the president or the, the, the prime minister is elected. To, so the whole kind of institutional power sharing topics um, then you would have justice, you know, dealing with accountability, legal setup. And then the, the fourth cluster often would be economic questions and the environment. And, you know, oil, wealth sharing would come up there or land uh, property rights and, and land sharing in a post-conflict context. The thing is, of course, that environment somehow touches all of these four topics, even if we push it a little bit into the economic environmental basket, right? Because the the way you set up the power sharing will shape how you govern the resources in the country. The taxation of the economic sector will affect how you deal with the resources. The security of where the forces are will have impact on the environment. So again, you know, you, you kind of have to think in these baskets, but realize they're not watertight, literally. <laughs> um, so when you've kind of figured out a bit the level you're working on, you've thought about the different environmental dimensions, then you would start thinking a bit of the tools and approaches, you know, and how you can use the tools and approaches. And there, I think coming from the mediation angle, you 
tend to think in uh, content and process. And the, the kind of the purest approach, which makes sense to a certain degree, is that the content, the issues, the topics, the substance that are part of the negotiation are coming from the conflict parties. And the role of the mediator is much more how do you structure the process? How do you help them reach an agreement on the topics they suggest? So it's not the role of the mediator to bring in the environment. It's really the role of the conflict parties to bring in the topics they see as fueling the conflict or, or aspects or symptoms of the conflict that they want to address and work with the other side to reach an agreement. And the role of the mediator is to help them in that process. So I think it, it's important to distinguish the role of the mediator assisting the negotiations and the negotiators who have then you know, the, the task and the responsibility of bringing up topics. And when it comes to climate change or environment, right? I think they're very concrete topics on a very local level and not these global interconnections, which are important and valid to know about. But when you're fighting for survival, when you want to stop armed conflict, they're very specific, concrete questions. A lot is around property rights, about water sharing, about wealth sharing, oil, you know, and other, other resources like that. So from the mediation angle, you know, what is concretely kind of burning? What are the topics they want to address? The content comes from the parties. And then the mediators and the mediation teams will help them in structuring the process and working on getting to an agreement. And the key here is, right, how do the conflict parties see the issues and not how do we international, with our normative frameworks and our knowledge of ecology, bring to the table? Right. Okay, thank you. The levels and unique characteristics of environmental disputes is interesting and Worth exploring more at some point, but let's consider the process content issue more. Uh, Olivia suggested that it's critical to get peacemakers to the forefront of the climate change battle, yet you're suggesting this might be challenging because in a traditional mediation model, it's, it's up to the parties to bring the content to the table, not for the mediator to be adding issues that need to be addressed. Um, even though natural resources will likely be part of the peace talks in, in the baskets you described. So uh, are there any ways forward here? Can the environment be shoehorned into these discussions? Now, you can bring in experts, right? And I think that they can bring a certain kind of reality check or, you know, if you, if you sign up to this agreement and you don't make sure it's adaptive to climate change, then it won't last, it'll collapse. So this, this role of reality testing, I think, is more the role of, a, of an expert that comes in, but not of the mediator who's designing the process and, and kind of working with the consent of the parties in an impartial manner. And I think this is exactly the whole point. One is, do our current mandates or conceptualization of security stand in the age of climate disruptions? And if they don't, then what's next and how can we make it work otherwise to prevent conflict, to solve conflict, to get out of, you know, very violent loops the same way, you know, the same that you can see, for example, in Yemen, which is originally a, a, a conflict, which I think it was already 12 or 15 years ago when the UN said, you know, that Yemen would be one of the first countries to run out of water and water is indeed a latent conflict driver, but it's not addressed currently in negotiations around ceasefire, obviously, because a ceasefire is also about um, how do you stop, how do you find your process towards stopping the hostilities and then open up the space towards what are the fundamental negotiations that take place, that need to take place. Exactly. So, and I, I think that's a very good example, right? It's a bit, I think a lot of our problems are solved by structuring our responses into short, medium and long term. Mm. And short term, sometimes just stopping the violence is the priority. The question, I think, and the challenge is that you do your short term, whatever it is, ceasefire, in such a way as you're not impeding a medium or long term response, right? So in a way, it should be a stepping stone to mm. those medium long term responses rather than, uh, you know, creating more problems. So I think that is one way to kind of solve this tension between uh, a, a kind of purist focusing on process and what the conflict parties want 
and this uh, obligation or responsibility from a global point of view from the ecological side. I, there's, there's another thing that's kind of niggling a bit, which is, you know, in the end, it is us who are, um, you know, the whole CO2 production is coming from the wealthy countries primarily, right? So then going to a conflict zone where they're barely struggling to survive and saying you need to think about climate change, I find is, I don't know, is, is something wrong about it? Well, yes and no, because at the end of the day, I think that it does provide also an opportunity to think, okay, I mean, I'm going to use some terms which I think, you know, we, we may need to, to change the language going forward, but we need to ask ourselves what collective security looks like in the age of, of climate change. We're shifting, you know, like we tend to focus at the moment, you know, this issue of, um, of climate security very much on how it's going to change um, livelihoods, for example, or... Uh, you know, patterns of behavior, patterns of relationship between elites and, and communities or people. But I think we're, we're looking at a much, much, much bigger picture. What we're forgetting is that, you know, we're shifting into the Anthropocene. We're shifting away from a world whose geographies, whose biophysical fluxes we have relied upon, consciously or not, for centuries and we're going into uncharted territory. And there is an, like, an acknowledgement, I think, which is growing, or at least which is go going to grow as well with uh, the incoming climate disruptions, which are hitting faster and with more impact now than was originally predicted. And we know that we have to shift very quickly towards adaptation uh, alongside mitigation. And so to a certain extent, Climate, conversations around climate change can bring a different uh, set of conversations forward. If we can think through scenarios and trajectories and trend projections, for example, about how water will start behaving differently in, cer in certain regions and how reinforcing the hydrological cycle by specific types of processes, which are indeed sort of compatible with conflict resolution and peace processes can help to actually strengthen the resilience of countries which are already struggling with their security to face the challenges that climate change will bring. I think that there is, you know, a, a sort of a frame of conversation that can change. And there is more than that, I think, which is related actually to the outputs of the COP and UNFCCC processes. At the last COP26, you know, we, took, we, we closed negotiations on the Article 6, the so-called Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which means essentially that, you know, there's going to be some carbon credits being made available and that private companies and public sector actors are also going to be willing to pay for in order to mitigate their uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which are not going to disappear from one day to the, to the other, since, you know, unfortunately, they're still rising for that matter. Um, so that means that if we think of the opportunity provided by carbon markets, we can think of new types of funding mechanisms that may help um, towards, you know, making funding spaces uh, available for conflict resolution as well. If we integrate indeed, um, not just nature-based solutions, but nature-based processes into conflict resolution, how to make sure once again that, you know, nature is part of the negotiation. So maybe not around ceasefire issues because that's not quite relevant in terms of timing, but how do we make sure that we indeed, you know, make sure, how do we ensure that processes do tackle conflict drivers as, as much as conflict dynamics? How do we also uh, provide a frame which is around regeneration? So, in, you know, this typical sort of thing about mediation, how do you enlarge the pie rather than invite your conflict parties to divide it, knowing that if conflict parties end up dividing their environment, the access to the environment or the monetized resources coming out of the environment, they're actually going to relapse faster and faster and faster into conflict and you know, face a number of significant disasters as a result of climate disruptions and ecological collapse. So by bringing all of these information up, not as a matter of norms, but as a matter of how do we build resilience? How do we make funding available? How do we support essentially, you know, processes which are indeed sustainable on the long term and which do 
address not just the human dynamics, but the environmental dynamics, which are always part of the fragility element, then I think that it can change potentially the way in which we we support, we frame, we facilitate conversations and negotiations. But I agree with you, Simon, that it's obviously not easy because, well, the environment doesn't have a voice per se, um, except in places where we can find indeed, you know, indigenous communities who can carry that voice and who need to be empowered from a political and economic and social perspective to be part of negotiations. But it remains, you know, very often in contradiction with the type of economic system that we tend to try and facilitate coming out of conflict, which is, well, around the world, essentially, you know, we have economies that are not particularly nature-friendly or or planetary or ecologically sound. So this is also something that we need to change. And this starts at home as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, for me, the key, right? The starts at home, right? If the OECD countries are the main drivers of climate change, you, you could correct me if that's the case or not. It seems, you know, we should tidy up our act at home first before going to a conflict region and saying, you know, think about climate change. Totally. Except, but the... except of course, if they bring it up and there's some impact of climate change and we can support them, you know, with additional funds and processes, but to, you know, this kind of ambivalence or this, this uh, double standard of being the cause of climate change and then going to conflict region and saying, you know, here's climate change, you should deal with this as well. I mean, it's just kind of... I, I completely agree. And I mean, like, you know, this is something that comes up in, in COP negotiations and it's, it really brought negotiations to a boil at COP26. And I expect that it will be the same at COP27. But consider this as well. As I was saying, you know, a lot of the... Um, critical materials, the raw materials, essentially, that the world needs, not just OECD economies, but that the world needs in order to switch towards renewable energy systems and energy mixes. Outside of China, um, you know, are very highly concentrated in places that, you know, are at risk of conflict or directly into conflict. If we don't, if the OECD countries do not rapidly switch towards decarbonized systems, if they do not stop emitting at very high levels greenhouse gas emissions, then climate change will accelerate. We will go way beyond even the two degree target. And the first countries that will be hit, not the only ones, but the first countries that will be hit with very high levels of disruptions will be mostly fragile and conflict affected economies. So we have two imperatives here. One is OECD economies need to accelerate their decarbonization. In order to do that, they need to transform essentially their interdependencies with countries that are at risk and therefore organizing, implementing, and facilitating this energy transition requires demands um, to handle, to you know, sort of care for those risks prevent them and actually transform essentially conflict dynamics as part of the energy transition because it is a matter of climate justice, because it is a matter of climate adaptation. And then, you know, the other part is indeed how we organize essentially a transition, which is, as I was saying, about collective resilience at a planetary level. It's not just an international level. It is very much a planetary level. And this is something that we still have a lot of trouble understanding, navigating, integrating into our analytical systems, into our response systems, into our preparedness systems, et cetera, et cetera. So the question then becomes, you know, like since, you know, there are some conflict dynamics that are fundamentally related to global inequities and inequalities, then how does the energy transition work in favor essentially of an equalization of resource distribution at a more global level, which helps essentially to organized responses that favor human security, ecological security, and things like this. All of this remains very much uncharted territory. And there are very, very few, you know, research or studies that really delve into the question of how do we move into this beyond the question of finance per se? Because, Mm. I mean, I remember at COP26, I met some people from conflict and fragile affected countries who are arguing for climate finance. But when I was asking them the question, do you know if, let's let's imagine for a second, you have a magic wand and you have all the money that you're arguing for, which is legitimate, then do you know what you invested into? And most of the time the answer was no. 
because we don't exactly know what adaptation looks like, because we don't think of adaptation as a whole of society uh, endeavor. The, the latest IPCC report, particularly from Working Group 2, which came out in February, did touch upon that. They were saying, you know, like adaptation and sort of adapting to the incoming world is going to be a, a it requires a sort of transformative process. I, I, I forget the exact wording, but there was this notion of transformation involved. But we don't exactly know what this transformation involves <laughs> and we don't know what it looks like. So maybe Warren, you could give us a summary of what you're hearing so far. Yes, I was I, I'm I'm happy to uh sit back and let you you guys go out of here. Uh I'll give it a go. Um I've been taking notes. Uh you were talking about the process content issue, how to get nature to the table when it's up to the parties to bring. The, the content, the issues to the table. Uh, Simon also introduced another concern here. It was the double standard, uh, OCED countries being the main uh, carbon emitters, then bringing the issue to these conflict zone countries saying they need to help repair and prevent further damages. Then you both talked about solutions. Simon introduced the idea of bringing in experts for reality checking uh, a sustainable agreement needs to consider climate change. Um, Olivia talked about global security and the need for a new narrative and buying into that new narrative moving forward. And also some possibilities of using carbon taxes as a funding mechanism for peace processes. So potentially being able to integrate climate, the climate issue that way. What else? The idea of expanding the pie is an interesting one. So instead of peace talks being about dividing up a resource, the talks might be about how to grow that resource or regenerate ecosystems. I'm not sure if that'd be hammered out in a peace process, but at least the broad strokes could be agreed upon uh, first. And that's sort of line with Simon's suggestion that uh, issues should be arranged in terms of short, medium and long-term objectives. And you both seem to agree that the environmental aspect can be key to a sustainable agreement and can also be a root driver. Olivia bringing up Yemen as an example there. So it's in the party's best interest then to adequately address these issues, which is helpful if there's an ethical double standard dilemma. And if they are a root conflict driver, then you'd hope that a good mediation process might help bring them to the surface, but they will still be secondary or even further from the immediacy of ending the violence. So it's an interesting challenge. Uh, and any other ways to bring nature to the table then? Um, there's also a lot of, I think, interesting technological tools like you know remote sensing, modeling, um, satellite imagery, which is bringing in a kind of a substantive topic angle into some of these negotiations or well, scenario building, you know, where you, before actually, you know, deciding and agreeing, you figure out with modeling or scenario building, well, what would the impact be? What would be the benefit? How would it shape our conflict or our conflict resolution process? So bringing in these kind of highly technical tools can sometimes be very useful in a process, you know, and grounding in the reality of the environment, the, the, the political priorities of the parties. And I think what helps here, which is also one of the ideas that Olivia and I have brainstormed in the past, is that you know if there's some kind of a joint vision for a process, and the joint vision should primarily be shaped by the conflict parties, but a third party would also have to see themselves in this vision. And, and there you see some kind of a, a global ecological, at least not making it worse aspect or dealing with the impact of climate change in this specific case and, and context could be part of that vision. And I think that is one way of saying, look, before we get into the nitty gritty of how to get to the vision, which is your actual negotiation, there's some common understanding of where we want to work towards. And here too, you know, the, the third party could come up I think, you know, often the conflict parties may be more environmental sensitive than the third party. So, you know, maybe it would come more from them than from the third party flying in and out in their airplanes. So that, that's one angle. I think another angle is to say this question of, you know, bringing eight to the table. The question is, 
who would represent nature? Maybe, Olivia, you have some ideas on that, right? Um, yes, and I mean, it will always remain, you know, a question of context. And that's where, yes, you know, there are there's a sticking point to a certain extent, but not to another. I think that the two visions that, you know, Simon and I are discussing are actually complementary. The, the sticking point or the tension is about how do we reapproach again mediation in the context of climate change and how do we approach therefore uh, discussions, framing tools to support um, negotiations between conflict parties. On the matter of representation for nature or for ecosystems, there are some places which are obviously uh, where you can find indigenous communities that have a natural connection essentially to ecosystems. They protect ecosystems, they regenerate them. You know, they like it's science has proven it once again, you know, that we can rely essentially on indigenous populations either in the Amazon or Congo Basin or even, you know, in the high north forests uh, to understand and know nature, not, not from an intellectual perspective, but actually from a living perspective. And this is what is actually needed. Um, because at the end of the day, what conflict parties who fight over resources or whose conflict dynamics can be triggered to a certain extent by fluctuation in natural availability or natural patterns, um, we need to understand that nature is a living complex system and we need to work with it rather than try to sort of understand it as indeed a sort of, I was using this notion of canvas at the beginning of the, comp of the, of the podcast. It's, it's a canvas, sure, but it's a living one and it's one that evolves and changes over time. We have a relationship to it. So the question then becomes, you know, how can we indeed insert some voices, let it be through experts, as Simon was saying, or through populations who know, understand, um, and, and steward nature in a way that helps essentially to, to drive regeneration and therefore potentially make the pie you know, bigger for conflict parties. The key question is always going to be, and I think that this is one of the sticking points that at least myself I have in, you know, it's, it's a, I find it's a tough nut to crack because we are embedded in a global economy, which essentially relies on extractivism of various forms uh, and, uh, and with various outputs, we tend to have governance systems that have long marginalized um, either indigenous populations or for that matter, environmental activists. And we're seeing more and more attacks on both of these uh, groups and uh, Global Witness is doing a tremendous job at recording also the the growing and increasing attacks every year on environmental activists, indigenous populations, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're dealing with elites in a peace process who potentially do not have any type of interest to really establish economies that are not rentier economies, that are not extractivist economies, then you're going to have a lot of trouble actually facilitating the entry or the voice of nature at negotiation tables. Um, and so the question then becomes, it's, it's, it, it always is at the end of, of the day for mediation and for peacemaking in general. The question then becomes, how do you play on different tracks? How do you play on dialogue sequencing, on content sequencing? How do you bring different tools indeed to make parties realize that even if you look at it from a purely economic perspective, you can't make do without an element of ecological integrity and ecological sustainability and, and how you're going to establish some governance systems that are truly going to be about addressing conflict drivers and about addressing you know, issues of socioeconomic redistribution and about making sure that um, a country is, is safe and stable and a society is secure from a multidimensional perspective, knowing that at, at the basis of any type of multidimensional security, you find ecology. You cannot have security if you do not have water, if you do not have food, if you do not have protection against health hazards. And all of this depends essentially on the integrity of ecosystems and, and the availability of their, of their ecological services. So 
I've trailed a long, you know, far away from the original question. Um, but, uh, but I think that the devil actually hides in the details and there's lots to learn from Simon. You know, you were saying like, it's about making sure that we can sort of, you know, really let conflict sort of parties be in the driver's seat and mediators only sit back or facilitate. They do not force anything. I don't think that it's about forcing anything. I think that it's about sort of bringing enough information that conflict parties request themselves or buy into a narrative where ecology is part of it or nature is part of it. But the objective needs to remain. How do you reinforce nature to the benefit of all parties involved? And I think that this is something that can create buy-in. And at that point, the role of the international community or the role of mediators and whatever institution backs you know, the mediator has to make sure that the, the, the value orientation of regeneration remains to address fundamental conflict drivers rather than conflict dynamics and therefore elite settlements that work against ecological security, human security on the long term. Simon, anything to add there? I just had one point, which I think is somewhat contradicting what I said before. And that's mm. when the third party mediation does touch on content. And it's the point that the third party, in a way, also has its red lines or limits to what kind of process or agreement it would witness, endorse, or support. And we have seen this in other fields. There are certain, you know, the International Criminal Court (ICC) has certain uh, red lines on what kind of amnesties a third party can be witness to, and if these are discussed in a process, the third party has to pull out. It's also now coming up in some cases where women rights, you know potentially could be sacrificed, then the third party or some third parties would certainly also pull out, right? They wouldn't want to support and endorse this. And, and there I can see it coming up in the ecological sense, right? If a peace agreement goes down a path where, you know, some kind of a big multinational company and local indigenous community and you're mediating it and you realize this is going to lead to destruction of the environment long-term or short-term even, you know, what is your ethical responsibility as a third party to say not with me, right? And I will I will pull out. So what are your own red lines? And there I I think we should just not expect more from conflict parties than than in our own societies and economies. You know, at the moment we're not we're not ecological ourselves. So at least, you know, not ask more from them than than we're we're not doing ourselves. So again, you know, tidy up our own act in a sense before asking more from others. Completely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the idea of expanding the pie, I was hoping, Olivia, you might have a chance to get into the regeneration topic. Uh, what does that look like? It's a big topic. Do, do we have time to get into that? Uh, I'll try to, I mean, I can, I can run through it very quickly because at the end of the day, so as far as I know, and in, in my own research, I haven't um, come across any specific example of regenerative processes, tools, and techniques being brought into political mediation, um, which is something that I keep pushing for and which I'm hoping will happen at some point, but there is still, you know, very much this silo approach Um, whereby you have ecological designers, hydrologists, and environmental regeneration practitioners who sit on one end of, you know, the world, and then political, uh, you know, sort of peace process uh, practitioners, mediation practitioners who sit on another and who look at uh, the environmental issues from a very technical perspective most of the time. However, there are some um, really amazing stories of regeneration that have happened I can uh, direct you to different resources, including you know, very accessible ones on YouTube, for example. There is a documentary by John D. Liu called Hope in a Changing Climate or a Changing World, I think, which documents the regeneration of the entire loose plateau in China, which is approximately the size of France, um, which has essentially sort of rebooted ecological services um, helped, you know, with the rebooting of agriculture, with the filtration of river systems and the uh, flowing of river systems in, in, a, in a place that was, you know, running out of, uh, of hydration and landscapes. Um, it has also sort of contributed to stabilization of uh, farming yields in the area. And you may think, well, it's easy, it's China, but uh, you also have to make like some, some beautiful experiences and, uh, and testing grounds in Ethiopia in Rwanda, 
in Yemen, uh, in Latin America, uh, in Kenya, where they encountered you know, projects which were more on the developing side of things, uh, where the focus was very much you know, trying to sort of see how you can reinforce the environmental fabric, recreate what we call water retention landscapes. So making sure essentially that your landscapes are able to store water rather than let it evaporate or run off. Um, there is a person whom in this world I really admire. Her name is Natalie Topa. She works for, or you know, she used to work, or maybe still, still works for the Danish Refugee Council. She's been doing some amazing work in Yemen with uh, conflict-affected communities and with host and displaced communities across the Horn of Africa, um, demonstrating essentially how you can use fully accessible techniques, right? We're not talking about technological means for regeneration. We're talking about how to work with natural landscapes in order to enhance and strengthen their ecological services to the benefit of the landscapes and to the human populations who live in the land in the landscapes. And it's really quite incredible what they've been doing. It uh, leads to a, a, a cohort of different benefits in terms of women's rights, in terms of food security, water security, hmm. protecting against health hazards, making sure that you work essentially through uh, community reconciliation or social fabric resilience uh, between also you know communities and and the police or the security system in place and the governance systems and system in place to essentially recreate socioeconomic fabrics um, that work for everyone, including for nature. And the last example that I can give is I've heard recently, for example, that Panama, which was, if we look at it more from an economic perspective, was realizing essentially that um, they, well, most of their economy relies on the canal. Um, the canal was, you know, suffering from subsidence as a result of land erosion and from, you know, a number of different disasters. Um, and what they did is essentially sort of, you know, regenerate essentially the, the banks of the canal in order to make sure that the, the, the boats could still go through and that they could maintain their economy. Um, it was a question of sustainability. And now from what I understand, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure on the whole mathematics of it, but what I understand is also that they're actually taxing essentially the passage through the canal to impose, you know, a sort of climate task, tax or carbon tax of some sort, mm. which they partly use to, you know, insert or to channel into continuous regeneration essentially of their environment, which helps to maintain their economy. So there are a, a bunch of different, you know, stuff that, are really, really interesting to look into in terms of what does regeneration look like in each and every context and what kind of benefits does it bring? And so far in my research, I've only seen really, really good integrated benefits for people and for landscapes and for therefore climate adaptation and mitigation as well. That's great. Thanks for running through those. Uh, very positive, not just for climate, but to hear how the benefits are, are widespread uh, makes a better case to uh, bring these talks to the table. Um, I, I know you have to run soon, Simon. So any last thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I think I'd have one final point to make. And that is really something that inspired me a lot working with a Muslim mediator in Kenya, Somali region, uh, the late uh, Deka Ibrahim Abdi. And that was this kind of idea of internal spiritual psychological regeneration. I'm using the word here slightly differently. But I think it, you know, at the end of the day, if in the OECD countries we want to stop overconsumption and pollution of the world, or you know, our human propensity to violence, there's a there's a lot of psychological spiritual work that has to be done by every individual as well as every collective group of human beings. And I think it's a core component, both of a more peaceful world, as well as a more just world and a more ecological world. And mm. there's no there's no way really around it, this this internal, that Deca called the, the great jihad, you know, the, mm. the inner struggle for, for peace and justice that, you know, we should also invest in, not just the, the exterior world. And um, <clears throat> so I think I'd like to also leave the uh, listeners with that idea of the importance of our own, you know, internal happiness on, on psychological growth, spiritual growth, which means then we don't need to consume and pollute as much because we're, we're satisfied with less, mm -hmm. you know, material consumption. Mm. Um, thank you, Olivia, any uh, 
final thoughts? I think um, Simon made a great point. I suppose that um, I'd like to relate it in my own words. So it's in a regeneration or even, you know, in, in permaculture circles or uh, degrowth circles, you know, people call it sobriety, um, which is an interesting word. We have to let go of certain sets of addictions, um, which relates back to this notion of inner peace. But there is definitely, you know, like the, the challenge going forward is going to to be how to manage essentially a transition of an energy system which is not just about maintaining business as usual because business as usual has proven to be beneficial in some respects but um in the last decade or so has proven to be very destructive as well and has proven also to sort of drive towards the resurgence of violence and conflict in many different forms and manifestations. So as we go about, you know, changing our energy systems for in response to climate change, we, we sh really shouldn't forget that the best response to climate change is going to be about making sure that we rethink, redesign and transform our relationship to the environment and therefore our economic systems in a way that finally you know manages to bring the sense of equilibrium between human civilizations and nature but also between human civilizations themselves so that some countries and populations don't suffer the ills as simon you know was saying of overconsumption overproduction and um and uh and economic systems that tend towards you know patterns of expansion that go way beyond planetary limits but also human wisdom essentially Okay, well, thank you both for sharing your thoughts on all this. I know we've just scratched the surface, but I definitely have a much better understanding of the issues and uh, some challenges to address those issues as well. So again, uh, thank you to you both. Welcome. Thanks to you. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more from international experts digging into a range of topics on conflict, power, and persuasion, Subscribe to your favorite podcast app or visit us at cn.org. That's C-I-I-A-N dot O-R-G.